Alright, if you'll open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. We will be in Acts chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered sent about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who, were, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Blake covered, as he said, 80 verses last week. I'm going to do a tenth of that today. We'll do just ten this morning. As We kind of did jump in here in chapter 8 in the middle of a thought, so to speak. You know, there are not chapter breaks and uh, when they, the, the verses were original, originally written, or the, the letter was originally written, there were no verses or chapter breaks. So we're continuing in a thought in chapter 8, but it, we're going back to chapter 7 here, what just happened in chapter 8, which Blake did do a great job of preaching last week. He, he preached the trial and execution of Stephen there in that chapter. If you recall, one thing Blake brought out as he was going through that that sermon and then that execution was how Stephen was bringing out how the Israelites had always rejected the messengers of God. Even dating back to the eleven children of Israel not named Joseph, they had rejected Joseph himself, right? As, as a messenger from God. Later, their offspring rejected Moses repeatedly. They rejected the Old Testament prophets. And then Stephen's very audience on that day had rejected Jesus, their Messiah, earlier. Stephen, now as the mouthpiece of God, was also rejected as well. We saw how his trial and rejection really mirrored Jesus in many ways. Blake brought that out as well as he went through that passage. And these Jews continued the pattern of their fathers in rejecting the mouthpiece of God rejecting God's Word by rejecting Stephen. Stephen was a mouthpiece of God as in the post-resurrection of, of Jesus. And in their rejection of Stephen, they rejected the, the entity really that Jesus had purposed to carry forth His message. The church. The body of Christ. We see in this passage before us today how the rejection of, rejection of Stephen's message then will carry over to that body, to that entity, to the church as a whole. The uh, title of my sermon this morning is Persecution Plants the Seed. Persecution Plants the Seed. Now it's been mentioned before, but the rejection of the church progressed little by little to this point, right? We've seen that as we've worked through the book of Acts. To begin with, there was the imprisonment of Peter and John. And then their warning by the Sanhedrin to stop preaching the risen Christ. They were told emphatically, do not do that. They were warned, do not preach of the risen Christ, of this risen Jesus anymore. That of course didn't work. As Peter and John, they went directly back 
to preaching the risen Christ. They went directly back to the Jews and preached the same message. Importantly, they did not push, the, the Sanhedrin did not push the punishment on Peter and John at that, to, at that point because they were concerned about the crowd. We're told that. They were concerned how the crowd would react, how they would uh, handle a, a severe punishment of Peter and John because they had initially responded positively to the, that, the sign and wonders and the message of the apostles. Chapter 4 here in Acts, chapter 4 verse 21 reads, And when they had further threatened them, speaking of Peter and John, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. So initially, even though there was persecution, they had been arrested and they had been warned, Peter and John, that was it at that point. The Sanhedrin, was they were the, the persecutors. The crowd themselves supported the apostles. They supported the, the act there and what had happened. Well, not long after that, all of the apostles were arrested as they continued to preach this message, this risen Christ. The Sanhedrin arrested them again, and Scripture tells us they did it because they were filled with jealousy. That night, though, an angel of the Lord broke the apostles out of prison, and they returned to the temple the next morning preaching the risen Christ. Well, when they didn't find them in prison, the captain of the temple was sent to get the apostles again and bring them before the Sanhedrin. So the captain goes to arrest them, and bring them back to stand trial, but we're told they were afraid to bring force on them to bring them back. Why? Well, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. That's what Luke writes. So although the Sanhedrin wanted them arrested, wanted them, ultimately we even read there, to be killed, they did not do so. The apostles were released. Now they were beaten This is a little increase in that punishment, that persecution. They were beaten this time. They were ordered again not to preach in the name of Christ. But again, they of course refused this order, order, right? They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, is what Luke writes. So to that point in the history of the church, there had been persecution in the church, there had been persecution to, to apostles and then to all of the apostles, but that had been it to that point. Further, the persecution to, this, to that point had been pretty minimal overall. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Don't mishear me. It, it's not a minimal thing to go to jail for faith in Jesus. I, I don't want to minimize that. It's also not a minimal thing to be beaten for the cause of Christ, which is what happened to the apostles. But in the grand scheme of things, I guess, if you look at a a big picture, they had not been in prison long term. They had not been beaten over and over. They had not been put to death. In fact, it seems that despite the beatings and the warnings, they were able to continue to preach and teach for a period of time without any further persecution. Again, that was in large part because of the fact that the people of Jerusalem had been supportive in some way or another of the apostles and their great works. But as we mentioned, once we got to chapter 6 and 7, that was about to change drastically. In fact, we saw in those chapters that it was the people of Jerusalem, not the Sanhedrin, but the people of Jerusalem, the crowd who instigated the arrest of Stephen and the stoning of Stephen. The first non-apostle to be persecuted and the first Christian to be put to death. Now, That people had begun to turn against the church, right? The crowd had begun to turn against the church. 
The religious leaders then were also more than happy to, to persecute the church even further, right? As the crowd stood behind them and really wanted the same thing they did, they were more than happy to oblige and, and persecute even further the church. And as we will see here in our passage, they not only had the approval from the populace of, the, of Jerusalem at this point, they had found the perfect man to lead the charge in Saul. So we are here reintroduced in verse 1 to Saul. And he will be a central character for most of the rest of the book here in Acts. Of course, this is the man we know will later be known as Paul the Apostle, and we commonly refer to as Paul the Apostle instead of Saul. But we are reintroduced to him here in, in verse 1 of chapter 8. And we are told immediately after the, the execution of, of Stephen that Saul approved of his execution. The LSB renders this statement, he was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. The NET, another translation, the net, net translation reads, Saul agreed completely with killing him. The point being that this is something Saul wanted, right? He wanted Stephen put to death. He thought it was right. He thought it was something that had to be done. His view of the death of Stephen is directly related to his view of Jesus at this point. Paul would later say of himself in Acts 22 that prior to conversion, he was zealous for God and the law. To be zealous is to have great passion for something, right? It's to enthusiastically or uncompromisingly pursue it. So Saul, at this point in his life, was a man dedicated to Judaism, to what he thought of the law and what he thought of Yahweh, and therefore... His misguided view of Yahweh and of the law and of Jesus led him to hate Jesus, zealously hate Jesus and the message of Jesus. So he hated what Stephen preached. He wanted Stephen put to death. Now remember, Stephen had been coming to this synagogue that we read about back in chapter 6 and 7, the synagogue for a while probably. This wasn't just a one-day thing. He came and he preached one time and then he was put to death. He had been reasoning and debating Jesus and Scripture to these Jews in that synagogue for a while. And there is a good possibility, and I mentioned this when I preached that, that, that passage, but there's a good possibility that Saul was one of the men that Stephen had been debating with and arguing with as he had gone to that temple. We also know from that passage that Saul was never able to overcome the arguments of Stephen because the Holy Spirit was giving direction to Stephen in his message and in his arguments. Ultimately, though, the only way that they could silence or put to rest the message that Stephen preached was to just make up lies about him and have him stoned, right? And Saul approved of it. But you have to think, and, and we really we know, that as the Lord dealt with Saul and saved him, that the death of his brother Stephen bothered him. In fact, this is certainly, I think, one of the reasons why he referred to himself as the chief of sinners later. Paul Saul had to look back at the things that he did to the church and Stephen here began really with Stephen and, and had a hard time to some extent with that, I'm sure. But nonetheless, here we read that Saul in his current state, he approved heartily of this execution. And then we get, begin to see this major shift in the church I talked about to begin with. We, we saw there in verses chapter 6 and 7 again how for the first time the crowd and the general populace there in Jerusalem began to turn against the church. 
Now, thousands had believed as the apostles had preached originally, and many who hadn't believed had been fascinated with these signs and wonders that the apostles had performed. But again, that changed with Stephen. The crowd became very anti-message of Christ, anti-church. Even these signs and wonders which we saw that Stephen was working, they had lost their luster with the people. So as the crowd turned against Stephen, they turned against the church. And persecution, we read, came on that day. It says there in verse 1 still, and there arose on that day, speaking of the day he was executed, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose. So that very day that Stephen was put to death, it seems like the floodgates were opened to great persecution to come upon the church. Luke tells us that they were scattered then throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria as this persecution came about, then this great persecution. So as we look at this, this scattering, this, uh, the, the people here in Jerusalem leaving, the church leaving Jerusalem and scattering to Judea and, uh, and to Samaria, what, what are a couple of reasons why they... Why the Lord allowed this? Why the Lord purposed for this scattering? Well, I think there are two primary reasons why we see this persecution and we see this scattering here in our, in our passage. The first is, at this point, the Jerusalem Jews, which commonly represented the, the nation as a whole, we see that they have finally firmly rejected the message of Christ. Right? They have firmly, finally rejected Jesus. Now, they did originally reject Him, obviously, at His crucifixion, then they were preached the risen Christ, and now we see the rejection of the risen Christ, the rejection of the message of the risen Christ. So we see that as that's happened, God has purposed for the gospel then to, to go out away, to go to another area. So the church obviously was commissioned, and this is the second reason, the church was commissioned to go out and make disciples by Christ Himself, right? In every nation. That, was the, that is our commission. That was the original commission. Uh, some people have made the argument that the, the church there in Jerusalem, at, at, up to this point, they should have already been doing that. They should have been leaving Jerusalem and making, trying to make disciples elsewhere. and uh, you know, it, it, They had just been comfortable, I guess, and they'd stayed in Jerusalem. And, and so they were really not following God's directive, Jesus' directive, to go out and to make disciples in every nation. They should have been doing that. I, I guess that's possible, but I really don't think that's at all what's happen, happening here in the purpose of this persecution. There's nothing in the text that tells us that they were not wanting to go out. That Nothing in anything we've read so far, here or before or after, that will indicate that they didn't want to go out and, and preach to other people or, or preach to other nations or anything along those lines. They had any hesitancy to not follow Christ and from what we, we've read and we'll see here in a moment, their response to this persecution, it's hard for me to think that that's at all what they had in their hearts and minds. Just a, they didn't want to leave Jerusalem. They were comfortable where they were at, and they, so God had to force them to go. No, I, I think, again, the, the purpose here is, is the time for the gospel to be preached primarily to the Jews in Jerusalem had reached an end. They, they had firmly and finally rejected as a, as a populace here in Jerusalem the, the message. And so now God has purposed them to continue to go out and spread, out, spread the gospel in other areas. Now, we are told here specifically that the apostles did not scatter. And, and this is actually, I, I found it kind of uh, uh, odd in some ways, but most commentators, they believe that it was because they were not Hellenistic Jews, that the apostles were not Hellenistic Jews, they were Hebraic Jews. 
I'll get to more of that here in just a second. But this persecution, the, the, most of these commentators, they, they think that this persecution that came on the church in Jerusalem, it came on a specific group of the church, the Hellenistic Jews. And so these are the Jews that actually fled or they, they scattered and not, not most of the church. Now you might recall back in chapter 6 when Stephen and Philip were appointed with the other five men to oversee the distribution of the food where that problem came from, right? The problem came because there were two factions of Jews even within the church at that point. There were the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And it was mentioned that in that sermon that there had been a major friction between those two groups outside of the church for a long time and prior to the church. It was also mentioned that most likely all of the men, those seven men that were appointed there in chapter 6, were, were Hellenistic Jews. That would have included, obviously, Stephen, who was just put to death, and then Philip, who we will read about and study here more in just a second. We will find Philip as part of those who went into Samaria, this area which had been the, the uh, people in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, had been scattered to. So those are reasons why many believe that it's just the Hellenistic Jews that were scattered, and, and that's why the, we're told that the apostles specifically stayed behind there in Jerusalem. And while that's possible, again, I really don't think... That's what we see happening here. First, there's no mention of a specific group in the church who was persecuted or dispersed. There's no delineation, delineation here between any groups. It just says persecution came against the church, right? Luke has shown that he would include different groups even within the church if, if there was a great distinction or a purpose behind it. So why not do that here if there was some type of, uh, of difference in, in who was persecuted? Further, I think the passage says that a great, or the passage does say that a great persecution came against the church. If this perse persecution was only against a certain group or a small group within the church, while other, others remain there in Jerusalem, Jerusalem unpersecuted, then it would be hard to fit this text, right? A great persecution coming upon the church. This, church, this, this persecution was against not necessarily the, a group of, of people within the church. It was against the message of the whole church, right? Which was the same whether they were Hellenistic or, or Hebraic. The message was that Jesus is the Christ. That's what was hated. That's why Stephen was put to death. Jesus had fulfilled the types and shadows of the law. He had been murdered by the Jews, but was risen now from the dead, and He had ascended to, the, to heaven with the Father. This is what the Sanhedrin hated. This is what the crowd hated. This is what Saul hated. And this is what the collective church preached. Right. So I believe this persecution was against the whole church there in Jerusalem. But the apostles did remain as we're told. And I think the primary reason is because this was still the central location of the church. And it is where Christians would have known to find the apostles, which I think was a very important thing as the church grew in other places and needed direction on other things early on in, within the growth of the church. Now we're told here that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And, and here we begin to see the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy for the church before His ascension back in chapter 1. Jesus told, them, told the apostles there in, in chapter 1 verse 8, "...but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And that's exactly what we see beginning to happen here. They, they were in Jerusalem. We see that ministry for a period of time. That ministry seems to have primarily only being there in Jerusalem has ended now, and, and now they are going out to Samaria. They're going out to continue to fulfill this prophecy which Jesus had spoke about their testimony, about their witness. Then in verse 2, Luke writes that devout men buried Stephen and made great, made great lamentation over him. 
And we don't know who these were devout men were. Some have suggested that they weren't even Christians, but devout Jews who rejected and loved Stephen. Uh, excuse me, not rejected, but respected and loved Stephen. But it's much more likely that these were, were fellow devout Christians who also respected and loved Stephen. And they came to honor him, honor his death and bury him and, and lament him. According to John Polhill, Jewish law forbade funeral observations for a condemned criminal, which I think Stephen would have fit that, that bill at this point. Stephen was seen as a blasphemer and a, a lawbreaker. So for these men to come and bury Stephen and make great lamentation over him, despite that, despite knowing that, it would have required great courage. And, and I think, again, this just certainly speaks to what we see of the man Stephen and, and the love and the respect that he had garnered, at, garnered as a, a great man of God. And it's, again, hard not to see... Jesus pictured here the, the, what happened with Jesus and, and His burial and, and the, the great care that, they, that uh, was taken over His burial uh, as well. Then in verse 3, Luke mentions Saul again. He says, But Saul ravaging the church, entering, was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul begins to really dip into his hatred for the church here. And Luke begins to detail the extent of this persecution of the church. Saul had overseen the, the stoning of Stephen, right? He'd overseen the, 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 the death of Stephen. And, but now he's got his sights on more than just Stephen, more than just one man. He's got his sights on the rest of these that follow the way, that follow Jesus. We're told that he was ravaging the church here. He was going from house to house, taking men and women from their homes and putting them in prison because of their faith in Jesus. And this didn't just stop with imprisonment now. I know that's what we read here, but Paul, in speaking of his persecution of the church later on in Acts 22, in verse 4, he says, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison of both men and women. A couple of chapters later, in chapter 26, verse 10, Paul says of himself, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So this ravaging wasn't just a, a mere locking up for a, a day or, or a couple of days and they were released. No, it entailed both the imprisonment and the death of many of these saints. This was great persecution that came on the church at the hands of Saul. We see here the picture of the seriousness of Saul's pursuit of the church here. It seems that Saul had made it his sole mission at this point to eradicate the church. He didn't want to leave one stone unturned. So we're told he went from house to house. He didn't want one house to be unchecked. This word for ravaging here, it is a strong expression in the Greek. A strong expression that is used in the Septuagint for wild beasts like lions or bears tearing at raw flesh as they devour it. William Barclay states that this word expresses a brutal and sadistic cruelty. Look, we are getting the picture here of the persecution which came on that early church that they had to deal with there in Jerusalem. I want you to imagine for a second being in your home with your spouse and your children and then the police come knocking on your door, don't even knock, they just kick in your door and they drag you out and your spouse out and your children out and they arrest you and they place you in jail knowing that death is a very good likelihood for you and all of your family because of your faith in Jesus. It's exactly what was going on here in Jerusalem. 
And, and I, I would be lying if I, I wouldn't say it was hard for me not to think of what's taken place in Israel not too long ago, just a, a, a week ago, with the brutality and unthinkable cruelty of the women and children there. Now, according to the reports I've seen from what took place there in Israel, I don't know that Saul had gone quite that extreme. And I, obviously, I don't think most of the Israelites were suffering a, a week or so ago for their faith in Christ. Now, don't, don't mistake it. They are, they're suffering because they are God's chosen people, but they are not suffering because of their faith in, in Christ, I don't think most of them were. But there was an extreme and, and zealous hatred there for them, right? And we see that picture in our day. We see that unfolding in our, our day. And in a sense, that same extreme and zealous hatred by Saul for the Christian people is kind of a picture we can have here of that sadistic and brutal, brutal cruelty that, that came at the hands of Saul the church, for the church there in Jerusalem. I think Luke, who if you remember was a dear friend of, of the Apostle Paul, even as he wrote this, it was a dear friend of the Apostle Paul. I think Luke is making a point here to show us the nature of Saul and his absolute hatred of Jesus and His church prior to His conversion. That's something we don't need to miss. We don't need to, to let go of as we work through this and as we continue to work through Acts. That's important as we see the, the nature of the persecution because of that hatred for the church and also the power of the conversion of, of Saul through the Gospel later on in his life. According to verse 4, what did these persecuted, scattered Christians do? So we've got, we've got this... Great persecution that comes on the church. We know they're scattered. We know they go to other areas away from Jerusalem to get away from this, this persecution. So they just go and they hide, right? And they, they just practice their faith in, in secret. And they stay in their homes and they make out like they're not Christians any longer, right? That's what they do. No, that's not what they do. We're told very clearly here in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. They went and preached the Gospel of Christ. Interestingly, Luke uses the word here for scattered, and back in verse 1, the same word, the word he uses there is diaspero, which comes from the Greek word for seed. So they were scattered, like a farmer scattered seed here. What is the purpose of scattering seed? Well, it's so The hope is that, that that seed takes root and it produces fruit, right? In the face of great persecution, these Men and women, they didn't cower from the message that chased them from their homes. They, no, they were scattered, but they spread the Word of God, and it produced fruit, as we will see. Now, let me say this. These men and women, they didn't stay in Jerusalem and invite persecution, mind you, okay? We aren't required in it, or even expected to just welcome persecution with open arms or invite it in, or even to try to prevent it if possible, but we certainly are not to shy away from the message of Jesus, nor from our bold proclamation of our faith in Him, even if it comes. And that's exactly what we see from these men and women here. They were persecuted. They did attempt to escape that persecution to some extent, but they didn't shy away from their faith in Christ. They didn't shy away from their boldness to proclaim the Word. Right? This should be a challenge for us, and it should convict some of us, me included, we have no one taking us away from our homes today or forcing us to leave because we might go to jail or even more so be put to death. I mean, none of us are facing that today. It may come, but it's not today. Yet, I'm afraid we still will at times cower away from sharing the Gospel. Or we just 
don't have the desire to do so like we should. This early church had been chased from their homes, many probably without much money or a place to go. And yet they faithfully still told others of Jesus, knowing that this is the message that persecuted them, right? This is the message that put some of them in prison and some of them to death and forced them to leave their homes. We should be challenged by this as, as, as this example is given to us. They preached to Samaria after Jerusalem here. And, and again, we see this real shift in the intended audience of the Gospel. As I'm sure you're aware, the Samaritans, they were a hated people by the Jews. Samaritans were a, a, a people group who had descended from the northern tribes there in Israel. After the Assyrian mission, uh, invasion and captivity, they had forced those ten northern tribes out of the Promised Land. Some of them actually were allowed to stay behind there in the land. They remained behind in their homes. And those that stayed behind, they began to intermarry some of the Canaanites and some of the Assyrians who had made their homes there in, uh, in the Promised Land as well. But these, these people, these, uh, those that had stayed behind and intermarried, them and their offspring still continued to see themselves and consider themselves as the people of Yahweh. They rejected, though, all of any further revelation outside of the Pentateuch. They just looked at the first five books of the Bible as the only inspired Word of God. That's all they followed. That's all they looked at. And they actually went on to build their own temple in a place called Mount Gerizim. They actually had a view of the Messiah as well, but they, they thought of Him as the Tahib or the Restorer. They, they believed that He would return one day and would return the tribes of Israel to true worship of God as only seen in the Torah there, strictly in the Torah and, and not in any other additional revelation after Deuteronomy. So the Jews, obviously, they saw the Samaritans as these half-breeds, these heretics. And, and we know they would avoid them at all costs. They looked down on them. They, they hated them, really. So for these Christian Jews, then, to go and evangelize these Samaritans, it's a significant development. This is not a small thing. It's not like just going to a neighbor and telling them about Christ. This is a major shift. As I mentioned earlier, though, this was the pattern of the growth and the spread of the church and the gospel that Jesus had foretold back in chapter 1. Even further, even though the Jews in general hated the Samaritans, God desired and purposed for many of them to be saved and become His children, right? They, they were to be His chosen people as well. Jesus Himself had already laid the groundwork for that during His ministry when He spoke to the woman at the well and then to the Samaritans in her town who came to Him after her conversion. It's very likely that some of the scattered church who went here to, the same, or to Samaria had gone to the same area that Jesus had gone to with the apostles at the well. And in a sense, the apostles and Jesus there had, had sown. And then we see the church beginning to reap what was sown there as they continued to preach the Word of the Messiah, preach of Jesus being the Messiah a few years later. We shift into the dispersion itself in verse 5. We read, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs what he, that he did. So we see here, this man, Philip, again, now we had seen him earlier in chapter 6, made mention of that a little earlier. He's one of those seven men who were chosen along with Stephen to serve tables. 
He, it appears he's one that had been scattered. One of the men, one of the people in the church who'd been scattered after this persecution in Jerusalem. We're told that he went down to Samaria, which again is where we're told in verse 2 was where the church was scattered to. He went there and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Luke introduces the word here, cariso, which means to herald. Philip then went to Samaria as a herald for the king, right? He went to herald the message of the king, the saving message of the king to these Samaritans. And that's exactly what he does. Luke is also specific here that he went and he proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. Not their version of the Messiah, not the Tahib, but Yahweh's Messiah, the Christ. These Samaritans, they didn't need a message that conformed to their theology, did they? They didn't need a version of the good news that was more palatable for them so they could accept it and, and perhaps believe and eventually you know, accept Jesus instead of their version. They needed Christ and Christ alone. That's exactly what Philip preached to them here, the Christ. In verse 6, we read that in one accord then, they paid attention to this message, to this message of Philip, meaning that the whole area truly listened to these words that Philip was speaking. They didn't just show up for a good time to hear this, this new guy that, that's speaking and, and just half listen to him. They didn't show up in little pockets just here and there. No, the whole area came to intently listen to the gospel message which, which Philip was speaking. So here, unlike in Jerusalem at this point, the message was well received by the people, right? And this is such an indictment on the Jewish people at this point. This half-breed, heretical people who were looking for an entirely different Messiah still believed in Jesus, while the Jewish people whom He was sent to rejected Him. We're told here that they did so, they heard Him and they... After they, 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 they listened intently after they heard Him and saw the signs that He did. So here again we see another man. We saw Stephen first, but we see Philip also. Another man who was not an apostle, performing works and signs accompanying the preached Word. Even though Philip was not an apostle, this use of these works and signs, it, it fits the, the, scripture or the pattern in Scripture all the way back to Old Testament of how and why God has used works and signs to accompany His Word. And, and it's been mentioned before, signs and wonders were routinely given by God throughout the history of Scripture to confirm a man as His messenger, as God's messenger. To confirm the message that that man was preaching. That's why they were given in Jerusalem, right? To the apostles, and speci as specifically the foundation of the church. And that's why Philip is given the ability to have uh, these signs and, and wonders along with his sermon or his Word. This passage shows us the gospel message then coming to this area for the first time at a time when the church was still in its infancy, right? I mean, this is the first time it had been outside of Jerusalem, really. This was a, a brand new message then to pretty much the entire world. So Philip, as a very faithful man of God, as evidenced by his selection earlier, was given the ability to perform these signs and wonders as he preached the gospel so that his message was confirmed as God's message. We will soon see, though, that these signs and wonders, they were not the basis of faith. They were not the basis of the faith of this group. They were not what the Samaritans would come to believe in. They didn't believe in the signs and wonders alone. They would believe in the Word that Philip preached, right? The Gospel. It is the Gospel that is the power unto salvation. The signs and wonders, they just assisted the preaching of the Word here. They didn't substitute for the Word. 
And I think this is a point that we must make today. And I know we, we continue to harp on the charismatic movement and we continue to speak against that movement and what they, they, they attempt to preach and, and represent. But it's important because it's such a large movement that affects many, many people, people we know and we love. There are so many people who are looking for some great work of God to confirm their belief or to confirm the message that they, they hear. So many charlatans then are, are out there claiming to preach the gospel and then they are accompanying with these so-called signs or wonders. The truth is these charlatans, they don't believe in the power of the gospel itself. They think they must add to it by proclaiming some other word from God. Or they must make it more powerful by performing some miracle for the crowd to see and be amazed by. They don't believe in the power of the message then. They don't believe that faith comes through the preached Word of God. Now these men and women today are not actually performing works and signs as Philip was. Make no mistake, they are not doing that. But they are giving the impression that that's what they're doing and some are being fooled by it. Many of these people then that they are preaching to and they were performing these signs and wonders, they are then trusting in those signs and wonders. And they're not trusting in Christ. That was never, let me repeat, that was never meant to be the purpose of miracles, of these signs and wonders. If faith is in a miracle and it is not in the gospel, then the miracle is no good for the salvation of a soul. That's not at all what was taking place with the Samaritans here. At least not most of them. This is likely what we will see with Simon here next week in that sermon, but that is not what we see here with the majority of the Samaritans that we're told believe. We see the signs accompanying the message preached, but the people paying attention, as we see, in one accord to the Word preached and then believing in the Word itself. That's what we see. But what were these signs? Well, according to verse 7, He, he cast out unclean spirits. Most of them, in fact, were, were um, or, uh, most of His, his uh, works were, were cast out, were casting out unclean spirits. I, I couldn't help but think of the, the disciples in Matthew chapter 17 where uh, some came to Jesus and saying, we, we're trying to cast out this demon, or we came to your disciples to cast out this demon, and, and they couldn't do it. And, and Jesus tells them, you have little faith. They didn't have the faith to cast out the demon. Here we see Philip obviously full of faith, full of, of faith to be able to cast out demons here. Many also were healed from paralysis or lameness, and it's possible that this paralysis and lameness, lameness might have been due in part to demonic possession that Stephen was, or excuse me, Philip was, was casting out these demons. It could have also been due in part to physical infirmity which had come in birth or sometime later. Either way, we see they were healed by Philip through the power of God. Then in verse 8, we see the result of the message in the works of Philip. And this is beautiful. It brought great joy to the city. And what a great way to end this passage. We see the results of the gospel, right? The good news brings great joy. So this passage started out with great persecution against the church. Really a terrible thing for them to experience. But by verse 8, we see that even though this great persecution had come, what did it bring? It brought great joy. A couple of things before we close for us to consider about this passage. We see here the Gospel that breaks down all barriers. Right In Christ, there is no half-breed Christian. 
There's no Greek or Jew. There's no slave or freeman. There's no male or female. There's no physical trait or marking which makes us more acceptable to God. And therefore, there's no physical trait or marking which makes us less accepted by God. We are all washed and redeemed by the same blood if we are believers in Jesus. So there's no room for a believer for prejudices in, the, in our heart. There's no excuse for us to be selective with whom we share the gospel with. The salvation of a sinner, no matter his past, no matter his physical appearance, no matter his cultural background, no matter his nation of origin, should bring nothing but joy to a believer's heart. Right? And that's what we should go forth in our, our commission to do, is to, to bring about through the preached Word of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit, the salvation of all sinners. This passage also begins to show us the power of the Gospel and the power of our naturally depraved Adamic flesh. As I mentioned a minute ago, the acceptance and belief in Jesus by these Samaritans and the rejection of Jesus by the Jerusalem Jews was an incredible indictment on the Jews. But unless the Holy Spirit changes a heart through the good news of Jesus, it doesn't matter how much religious privilege we have. We will always reject Jesus. It doesn't matter if we grow up in church hearing nothing but the truth preached and the right songs sung our entire lives. It doesn't matter if grandma and grandpa and mom and dad and sister and brother and all 20 of our cousins went to church and claimed to be Christians. That doesn't make us accepted in the sight of God. Do not be fooled into thinking that any of that will make you righteous before God or eternally safe. None of that will save you. Those are great things, don't get me wrong, but none of that will make you acceptable to God or will give you salvation. Only faith in Jesus and Jesus alone through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit will save. Thirdly, this passage should encourage us to go and herald the message of our King as well. There is power. Let me repeat that. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is wonder-working power in the blood of Christ. There is no barrier that God cannot break down or has not broken down in the history of the church. Even when Satan attempts to do damage to the people of God, our message it has the opposite effect. God used even this great persecution to create a great work of salvation in the Samaritans which brought great joy. So there is power in the message that we proclaim. But there's no heralding without the herald. There's no evangelizing without an evangelist. Look, you don't have to be a pastor to herald the King's message. Nor do you have to be a preacher to evangelize an unbeliever. All believers have the good news. And we have all been commissioned to tell others. Let us have confidence in that message. So let's herald it. Lastly, as John Stott stated in, uh, in his commentary on this passage, the Christian presupposes the good news of Jesus Christ. Effective evangelism becomes possible only when a church recovers both the biblical gospel and a joyful confidence in its truth, relevance, and power. End quote. Meaning, for a Christian, or for a church more broadly as we sit here this morning, to properly and effectively evangelize our community or herald the message of the King we must first know and understand the biblical gospel. It has to start there. Not some watered-down version, not some worldly version, not some theologically twisted version, but the biblical gospel. 
Faith in Christ alone plus nothing. We must herald that message. But we must do that with joyful confidence. Confidence in the truth of that message. Confidence in the relevance of that message. And confidence in the power of that message. And look, we can look to our own hearts. We can look to our own lives if we are believers in Christ now. We can see the truth, the relevance, and the power of that message. If we now have saving faith, it's because God allowed us to see the truth in that message, which was very relevant to us, obviously. And it came in power. So let us go forth knowing that, having joy in that, and have a joyful confidence as we herald this powerful, wonderful, true, and very relevant message today. Stand with me.